Here's the Thing is supported by the Venture Card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from WNYC Radio. Judd Apatow's films include The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, and Funny People, all of which feature emotionally immature men forced to grow up after confronting respectively sex, responsibility, and death. While his films are not autobiographical, they all attempt to answer the same question, one that Apatow himself grapples with, can you become a grown-up and still enjoy your life? Of all Apatow's movies, his most recent, This is 40, which opened the weekend before Christmas, may be his most personal. It stars his wife, Leslie Mann, and his children, Maud and Iris, who play her kids in the movie. It's here where Apatow's complicated and nuanced comedic point of view collides with marriage, work, and family. This sounds horrible, but do you ever wonder what it would be like if you and your wife were separated by something bigger like death, like her death? I have given it a, a fair amount of thought. Not in any painful way, but just like a gentle floating off. It's got to be peaceful. I mean, this is the mother of your children. And then the new wife would be great. God, I can't wait to meet my second wife. I hope she likes me better than this one. <laughs> Judd Apatow began studying the art of making people laugh as a kid when he would rush home from school to watch TV from 3.30 until after midnight. All in the family, Rhoda, Mary Tyler Moore, Taxi. On the weekend, he transcribed the bits he heard on Saturday Night Live. You're listening to Club Comedy, WKWZ in Syosset with Judd Apatow. This is Jerry Seinfeld for Judd. In high school, Apatow had a radio show in which he interviewed comedians such as Jerry Seinfeld, Gary Shandling, and John Candy so he could learn as much as he could about their craft. I like to talk about your uh, type of comedy that you do. Mm -hmm. How do you describe it? It's sort of it's funny. <laughs> observational with like a twist on it. It's not, some people just tell a joke, like an observation, and that's it. But you add a whole new dimension on it. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to see something, you know, and I think the next step is to do something with it, you know. Uh, like, I'm, like I'm uh, doing this routine now about um, this guy that was on That's Incredible and she had caught a bullet between his teeth. And it's like you see a thing like that and you go, what the hell is that? You know, I mean, a guy catches a bullet between his teeth. And now I don't know what's funny about that. But I, I think to myself, there's something funny about that. And that's what I like to do. Other now 45, kind of you know, Apatow is arguably at the top of his game and seems to have his hand in nearly every comedic success of the last seven years. He was a producer of Anchorman, Superbad, Bridesmaids, and is currently an executive producer of the hit HBO show Girls. But even after the commercial and critical success he achieved, Judd Apatow still craves... Reassurance. I need constant approval of my writing as I'm doing it. So I will show people the first scene, the first 10 pages. What the, people? Anybody. I will show anybody. <laughs> I literally will send it to friends. I, you know, Jake Kasdan, who directed and produced on Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared, is one of the first people I show things to. But I'll show it to the studio because I don't like that moment when you have a finished script and you go, I wonder if they'll like it. So if I send them thousands of pages over the course of two years, they're so confused right. that there's not a moment of truth. It's going to bury them. <laughs> exactly. And when it, when it really gets down to it, 
Lena Dunham and I were working on Girls uh, with uh, Jenny Connor, who runs Girls. So that was happening parallel to me making This Is 40. So we would literally spend two hours breaking girl stories and then two hours talking Talking about about This Is 40. And then near the end, I'll get the courage up to send it to like Eric Roth and James L. Brooks and Cameron Crowe. Brooks is a big influence to you. Yeah, he's probably the biggest influence, I think, his whole approach to stories is just imprinted in my mind from my childhood, watching Mary Tyler Moore and Taxi. That's how I feel like stories work. Normal people with everyday normal problems trying to get along, trying to make their jobs and their the love in their life work. And his work always ends with some beautiful grace note, mm-hmm. which is always hopeful yet realistic. And I remember them from when I was a kid, how you know there was a Taxi episode where Louis De Palma was dating a blind woman, and he was so in love. And then she was having an operation to get her sight back, and he he thought she's going to dump me. Yeah, which she can see, which she can see. And then, of course, she loves him and thinks he's beautiful. And as he walks out of the room, he throws something in the garbage, and he says, "I guess I got to get a real ring." <laughs> and and I, I used to love how he would pull that off. So he he's very helpful. And in the middle of this is forty, I, I emailed James Brooks and I said. Remind me what the movie is about again. I forgot. In the writing phase. Uh, no, while we in were shooting. shooting. And he sent me a long email saying, this is what your movie's about. So you kind of, I'll let you say this, but it sounds to me like you swim in kind of a pool or a stream with a lot of people who make films and you're, and you're open to their suggestions and you're open to their ideas. If you talk to a multitude of people for their ideas, which ones do you, I mean, in the end, you decide. In the end, you choose. I've always had faith in my ability to make that call. Right. So I don't mind a lot of feedback. It doesn't confuse me if everyone says something different. Right. I mean, I come from television and rooms of people arguing about story. And my formative years were spent at The Larry Sanders Show, where you were a great guest. And I, I, one of the great early moments in my career was I wrote a bunch of those scenes in, in the episode sure. you were in. And I, I just was... saw it on TV the other day I was home. My favorite line, which was when Shandling goes to the wings of the stage when I'm on the set, and I'm not quoting it properly, but Rip says, what's the matter? He says, I can't help it. I keep seeing him having sex with my wife. And he says, and she's on top. And Rip says, the lazy bastard. That's right. That's a, that is, I wrote that joke. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I wrote that joke because I was so proud of that joke. I love that. And I remember when you came in to the first day of shooting and, and to do the quick rehearsal and Gary was giving you shit from the second you walked yeah. in the door. He's like, Alec, do you need a lozenge? You need a lozenge? <laughs> and you said, all right, that's how it's going to be, Gary. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it's going to be. And uh, it's, it's one of the great episodes. So so I think that's... That was not your first job, though. My first job, I used to write jokes for comedians. I wrote jokes for Roseanne's nightclub act for and a long time. Why did you become one? Why did you, or did you do stand-up periodically? I did it for for seven years. It's all I wanted to do. But I very quickly realized... I was better at creating sketches or dramatic situations to get my point across. And as a straight monologist, I wasn't interesting the way my roommate Adam Sandler was or Jim Carrey. Just as a fan, I knew, oh, I'm not these guys. You really felt that way? Oh, yeah. And and you were in L.A. at the time? I was in L.A. I lived in North Hollywood with Sandler. How long did you live with Sandler? It was under two years. Right. And 
it, I mean, it was the most fun time ever. Every time we see each other, we're like, that was the best. You know, we were just so into doing stand-up. And back then, Sandler wasn't famous, so he was really silly all the time and very uh, obnoxious and trying to make strangers laugh. He he really engaged the world for his own amusement. He had less to protect than he does now. Yeah, yeah. He, he just loved, you know, asking, pulling people over to ask for directions in the car and doing something crazy to them. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but he was the guy that would fart in the elevator and go, Judd, come on, Judd. we're in an elevator. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, that disappears when you get famous. Yeah, you brought this up. There, you know, well, the, but you brought this up, and I'm, I can't say I'm glad you did, but um, in your movie, Paul Rudd is in bed with your wife. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> He's in bed with his wife. Yes. And to torment her, he just rips off a series of well-placed... Like he's turning over cards in a game. He's just like, he rips a couple of uh, parts yes. there. But you, that's not how you live, right? I mean, <laughs> well, it's a, that's a complicated uh, scene. And uh, what's funny about that scene is uh, <laughs> you know, they're having a very serious conversation about their finances, which are not good. And they're watching security camera footage, waiting, trying to figure out who's stealing from them. And yeah. they see Megan Fox fooling around with someone at work. And then Leslie says, at least she's getting some. And his yeah. reaction after a few moments of feeling attacked is to just fart. Yeah. It's like a monkey. It's kind of like saying, you know, screw you. And Rudd did it as an improv. It wasn't it was in the statement. script. Yeah, it wasn't in the script. And Leslie knows, okay, if anything happens off page, I need to go with it. And she's furious. And you see it in her eyes. And she's really genuinely disgusted. And you get kind of a real sense of what marriage is like off of just a stupid Yeah. Yeah, marriage is, uh, you watch security footage to see if Megan Fox is stealing money from your company. Yes. And she's banging her boyfriend on the desk, and <laughs> you get your wife gets horny, and you feel threatened by this. You fart on her. Exactly. Um, That's how complex is marriage is. Yeah. <laughs> now, the other question I have is apropos of the movie was, so I'm, I'm thinking, Rudd, it's either the highest honor or he's the goat, because you're, you know, you're lying in bed with your wife, who's made a lot of great films and funny films, and you say... Uh, what's your nickname for your wife, may I ask? Did you call her Les? Is it Les, Leslie? Well, the funny thing is, I always call her Leslie, and then she's like, Judd, my name's Leslie. Leslie. It's not Leslie. Leslie. <laughs> I literally yeah. say her name wrong. I'm from Syosset. It's Leslie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Leslie is, we're, we're not in Cambridge now. Exactly. So you're, you're there with her, and you say to her, I'm, I'm just envisioning this scene where you look at her and you say, baby, who's the guy that you, like, most want to have sex with? <laughs> it was like, and just be honest with me. We've been together a while. We have two kids. You know, it's me. I'm making a film. And she says, God, Paul Rudd. And immediately you cross his name <laughs> off the list. Exactly. And go, he's never doing my film. Or is it like you put him in? Or do you say to her, baby, who's the guy that you view as like a brother? Like if you had sex scenes with him, this wouldn't mean anything. You'd be like, like fooling around with your brother, Paul Rudd. That's and right. And you go, hire him. Yeah, she's disgusted. Uh, and And that makes it okay to watch them fool around. I, I'm always disgusted when she fools around with anyone. I remember when we shot The Cable Guy, she kissed Matthew Broderick and then when they parted, I saw in the dailies, there was like a, a spit string that connected them for like yes. a foot. And like I a lady in the tramp moment <laughs> exactly. almost. <laughs> and so, yes, I'm glad that, unless they're lying about being disgusted by each other, because I may be the fool. They are lying to you. Oh, they man. are lying to you. Yeah. That's terrible. Because yeah. I, I know... Because I've heard that before. <laughs> you know, I've, I've had... Well, well, you know, my ex-wife has got, you know, Russell Crowe's got his tongue into her spinal <laughs> fluid. And she's like, no, no, it was just nothing. It's nothing. Well, the day I had... Uh, back surgery for a herniated disc 
back in uh, the year 2000. Leslie couldn't be there because she Leslie. Leslie, sorry. <laughs> no, go Le- continue. Leslie couldn't be there because she was Mrs. Sh- Apatow, we'll call her. She was shooting a, a scene where she was making love with Jeff Goldblum. Uh, and you just know he's all handsy in between you know takes. He's, just, he's the fly. You know, he's just <laughs> pushing buttons on a woman that you don't even know we're there. Exactly. What does the director, Judd Apatow, do when Leslie Mann passes? You know, when you know people so intimately. You, you're, you knew you're, she was in. I ask her before I write the script, you know, I'll say, are you comfortable, you know, doing a fictionalized version of how we feel about this time in our lives? And I'll start telling her some of the story. And then she starts pitching me Debbie's point of view and scenes. A lot of the scenes in the movie are Leslie standing up for her character so it's balanced. Right. Uh, it, it's it's not like I write a script and hand it to her. It is a collaboration. Does over. she help you with a, with a, get a good woman's perspective? Oh, yeah, because I have no woman's perspective at all. This is 15 years of marriage and her explaining what I do wrong put into a movie. Uh, In Knocked Up, there's a line she has, which we took from our life, which was, just because you don't yell doesn't mean you're not mean. Right. And that's the kind of insight I would never have. My my, my daughter, she goes, mommy yells at me 10 times more than you do. But when you do it, it's different, she said. Exactly. That was my favorite. And also the whole idea of how I can be detached and shut down and not want to connect with anybody and how it's a, you know, an emotional abandonment to people when you do that too much. But, you know, some people, like for me, I get just overwhelmed. I got to numb out for a while. You got to have a little Walden time. Exactly. And sometimes it's in the bathroom with an iPad and uh, you, yeah. you have to uh, read Huffington Post. So those Post. scenes when, when she's coming to the bathroom and Rudd is sitting there with you, the, that's you. Uh, it is. The except, bathroom is a sanctuary. But she would never, ever knock on the door or open the door. Right. But when I walk out, she'll say, what were you doing? And I'm like, I'm going to the bathroom. She's like, you were tweeting. And I'll say, I wasn't I wasn't yeah. tweeting. She's <clears throat> like, I can see your feed. It, I was going to the bathroom and I was tweeting about it. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm like, don't, doesn't everyone? I'm, I'm marketing our movie from the toilet. Yeah. But so, it, it, you know, it's very fictionalized in a story. But the emotional things that we're arguing about make their way into the movie. Now, when you start a film like this, and you've had tremendous success in the last couple of years, and in movies, which is uh, tough, you know, movies, in my mind, is the toughest of them all. And so you step up and you do this movie, and do, or is there a fear when you begin? Do you think to yourself, oh, God, this is the one, um, all the wheels are going to fall off? Like, what's your disposition when you start shooting? You know, I have both sides. You know, I want to succeed because I just want to be allowed to continue making movies. I also have a rebellious streak, which is I, I do have some sense of what makes a very commercial movie, and I'm working partially against that. Like, as the attention span of the audience gets shorter, I want to make longer movies to say there's something wrong with you that you can't sit for two Did hours Did you deliberately do minutes. that with this film? I deliberately do it with all of them because I, I feel like, you know, this is the only time we're going to get with these people. Why do you need to rush to get home? Right. And I like movies like Jerry Maguire and Terms of Endearment and movies that were over two hours. It takes an extra 20 minutes to explore you know, more dimensions of people. And no one says anything? You're not there with the, the studios? Not, I mean, because those guys, that's pretty much the first thing out of their mouths is, Judd, can we, we need 100 minutes, babe. Yeah, the funny thing is, they're all, like, I think um, maybe uh, Knocked Up was 210. So I've set this pace, this very slow pace. It's funny because The Hobbit and all these Le Mis, they're all 245. They're right. all like a half hour past me. Right. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, 
my characters, uh, someone said to me, it, you're basically saying these people are worth your time. And sometimes I watch the movie because I have to watch it hundreds of times. I think, sure. wow, this is long. I'm right. really putting people through it. But there is a part of me that feels like, good, experience this. This is life and it's funny and it's difficult and and I need the time to do the full ride of that. So on day one, I'm both trying to figure out like marketing-wise and concept-wise a way to make it sell while thinking I'm sneaking some John Cassavetes, Robert Altman aspect into a mainstream comedy. Right. When, when, when you do a film like this as Knocked Up begets this film, does this film, does right away do you start thinking of other ideas? Whether you do them or not, do you, like one of my favorite moments in the film is when it's toward the end of the film and they're at the party and the guy, the, the, the life coach is hitting on Megan. Uh, Jason Siegel, Jay, yeah. Jason Siegel is saying, uh, what's his character's name? Uh, Justin? Uh, J- Jason. <laughs> uh, J- Jason. Yeah, so he's saying to her, you know, yes, I will, Jason, whatever the line is. He demands that she repeat and repeat. I thought, now, that would be a funny character in a movie, this life coach who's just uh, oh, absolutely. Just I think banging that, everybody. I think that about most of the characters, I, especially coming from TV, I love that there was Rhoda after Mary Tyler Moore or Frasier after Cheers. So anytime a character works, I could watch it. You know, I could wow. watch uh, either of the leads of Superbad go off on their own, Michael Sarah's character or, or Jonah Hill's, or the cops. Once it exists, I'm kind of more depressed that we're not doing more stories. And that's just my whole thing. I don't like to let go. So if someone said they're going to make a movie about what happened to Albert Brooks's character from Broadcast News, I'd be the happiest man in the world. Had you known Brooks? Had you been uh, acquainted with him and had worked with him before and you did this movie with him? I met him in the early 90s when uh, I was working at the Larry Sanders show. I had dinner with him a couple of times with Gary. And I was just in, in awe to, to be around him because his Saturday Night Live movies were a really big influence on everything we did at the Ben Stiller show. And obviously, you know, Defending Your Life and Modern Romance and Real Life, you know, was the— Lost te- in America. Yeah, yeah, it's the template for a certain type of—, of You can never say nest <laughs> yeah, exactly. and egg in the same sentence again. Although my daughter watched uh, Lost in America for the first time the other day. She's 15. And at the end, uh, she said to me, what's a nest egg? <laughs> She goes, she's like, I literally thought the money was in an egg. Uh, And I was so excited to meet Albert that afterwards I went home and I wrote down every joke he said at dinner. Like I still have like the The journal journal. entry where he's making jokes about the Menendez case. (laughs) You don't kill your parents and buy a Rolex. You don't do that. (laughs) Uh, So I, I wrote the part just for him, hoping it could be good enough. I never want to ask anyone that I look up to to be in my movie if I don't think it could be as good as their movies, you know, I don't want it to be their crappy movie. And so that's why I tend to work with young people because they have no— They don't know better. They, they don't—I I won't be their worst movie. The standards movie. aren't set in stone yeah. yet. Yeah. Now, now when, with Brooks, when you work with people like that who are veteran, if you will, or very experienced and have had tremendous success— What's that experience like for you as a director? Meaning, uh, do you do they come in and they just start riffing and, and and are they rewriting and improvising and you just let it go, or do you sit there and do you find a way, a politic way to say to them, I'd rather confine ourselves to this, what's on the page, not specifically with him, but with any of them that come in? Well, I how precious uh, are you about what you've written? Well, I'm never precious about anything other than my intention. So I, I know 
what I'm trying to accomplish with the character, but I'm very open to it morphing based on the interaction with the with all the actors. So with Albert, obviously I'm terrified because I'm working with someone who's clearly more talented than me. So I'm trying to figure out how to manage my idea for the story and tap him for everything that he's worth. Right. So I want him writing and thinking and pitching me. I mean, I, I spent a year in a room trying to think of a, an original character that he hadn't done before, but that would still use, you know, his great comic sensibilities. And then I brought him into a rehearsal and we did the scene as written. We did ideas that I had and then I just let him play and improvise and pitch me things. And obviously at the end of the day, if you were to like write down which of those lines are Albert's, you know, it becomes the the majority, which is the intention to, to give him a space where he's comfortable enough to, you know, to email me at night a better line, which mm-hmm. he would do the night before any scene. I, I, I'd get a little email from Albert. What if he said da da da? And it's always right. better than my joke. And, and as long and as you're comfortable that way. Oh, I'm thrilled. Because I'm coming off of an experience of the, the television show I did. There, were, there was a very strident, yeah. very unbending rule that we had to shoot everything as written. And there was no, you couldn't change a word or, I mean, we could do alternate takes and change yes. things. But we had to shoot everything as written with no exceptions pretty much. Well, I definitely start that way when we shoot. I like to do all of the improv and playing primarily in the rehearsal. And then when we get to the set, I'll shoot my polished version of the scene. And I will get it verbatim, and I make sure to get it. Then I'll start telling them things that we all thought of during rehearsals that I didn't put in, but that I still like. How liked. long do you rehearse? I, I'll do like a, a week early, like four months out from shooting, and then another week like a month out. Really? Wow. Uh, and a couple of table reads in the middle. Right. So it's like a TV show a few times. Sure. Uh, but then I'll let them play on the day. But it's different in movies because you're just shooting a third as many pages as you are with a television show. So when we did the Larry Sanders show, they would rehearse and let everyone goof a little bit, but on the day, there was no time to, to goof off. Right. If I was directing Freaks and Geeks, I might let Jason Siegel really go if I was the director, but if I, I wasn't the director, I would have to say, you gotta get the script. I don't have time to wonder what's gonna happen yeah. if I'm not there. How many pages would you shoot a day, would you say? How, what, was, what was the shooting schedule? How many days on, this is 40? Well, I think it was 58, and, you know, we wind That's up sh- sh- shooting four or five pages a day. But at Larry Sanders, we shot 17 pages a day. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Coming up, more with screenwriter and movie director Judd Apatow. Here's the Thing is supported by the Venture Card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? This podcast is supported by LegalZoom, providing access to a network of attorneys for legal guidance through their legal plans available in most states. LegalZoom is not a law firm, but has been dedicated to the legal needs of individuals, families, and small businesses for more than 12 years, providing self-help services at users' specific direction. Information about wills, living trusts, incorporations, LLCs, trademarks, and legal plan attorneys can be found at LegalZoom.com. Use the code THETHING for a special offer available to Here's the Thing listeners. This is Alec Baldwin. 
40-year-old virgin was Judd Apatow's first major box office success. It was also the first film Apatow directed, a transition from writing that was fairly seamless. I was uh, producing on Anchorman, and I hadn't uh, directed a film before, but I knew that Steve Carell was one of the funniest people I'd ever seen. He was crushing so hard every day on the set that all of the actors were baffled at how, how funny he was. And he wasn't someone that was in line to be the lead of a movie. He was just one of the great, hilarious, supporting actor people. And I always like – I like those guys to be the lead. I always want – you know, I want to see – Dustin Hoffman. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, beyond that, I want to see you know, George Went. I want to. I want to. I like seeing. I like because that's who I feel like. I feel like the side guy, and I always want to follow them home. Right. And so I said to Steve, "Do you have any ideas for movies? Because you definitely could carry a movie." And he said, "There was a sketch at Second City we did once that we never quite finished, which was about a poker game where." They're all telling sex stories, and it's clear that one guy has never had sex, and everything he says makes no sense. And he's saying, yeah, you know, like when you touch a girl's breast, it feels like a bag of sand, and you go down her pants, and there's all that baby powder. And and, and he said, so, you know, I'd love to play a 40-year-old virgin. And just because I'm such a nerd and so insecure and ashamed of everything in life, I just immediately understood what he meant and that you could do something very sweet and and riotously funny so we wrote it together now the now so when you direct the film how was the technical challenge for you or how is the technical uh, aspects of it for you grown because it is filmmaking and are you are like do mr and mrs apatow sit in the screening room at night and watch citizen kane and <laughs> Look at the there ra- is a man. Look at the rack focus. Yeah, do, do, um, you know, do, do you watch scenes from films and say, that's what I want. There it is. Uh, Freeze that right there, <laughs> Leslie. Look at that. Look at how he, he, he panned over at that moment. That's not me at all because I came from being a stand-up comedian and it was all dialogue. It wasn't visuals. So I never tuned into that. And I have no brain for the technology, so I can't remember the lenses and what they do. And even now, even now, like what I, do you, what do you do? Uh, I hire people who are really good. Like you they, just surrender all that to other people. Well, I, it's not a total surrender because I, I I will show them what I like, right. and they can turn it into technology. So Fade and Papa Michael, who did the you know the Descendants and Sideways, shot a lot of movies. I I love how they look, so I know okay this this look will be correct, and then we watch movies and. You know, I always I'm trying to model my work after movies like The Last Detail, the Hal Ashby movie, or Coming Home. I like movies that feel almost like a documentary, at least for my personal directing. I want you to forget I exist, and I'm trying to make it as voyeuristic as I can make it. In, in some ways, it's like Larry Sanders. I, I like that look for comedy for what I do. Before I came here this morning, I was sitting... Uh with my wife, and she was watching uh, Netflix, because my wife is, uh, <clears throat> you know, she's a little younger than I am, shall we say, and so there's, a, there's a whole uh, uh, library of films that she's heard of and not seen or hasn't even heard of. So she's watching The Graduate, and that's a young Nichols. That's an early Nichols. He's doing the storytelling with the camera, and he, he's telling the joke with the camera even. And I just was wondering if that's something that, that each film do you make, do you commit more deeply to understanding how to do that? Or, well, I have a, a sense of if what I'm trying to do is coming across. Right. And, and visually, 
I'm a little bit more of a, I know it when I see it. Like, it just feels like I need to be tight here. It feels like I need to be wide. And I'm making a lot of unconscious choices about space and and uh, tension. But I'm not sitting there storyboarding it just in the moment. I, I kind of have a sense of this is how far away I should be from Leslie if she's yelling at Paul. And The Graduate is a kind of a great example. I, I did a Q&A with Mike Nichols at the Museum of Modern Art recently, and we were showing clips of our movies and talking about movies. And then he shows that sequence where he plays the two Simon and Garfunkel songs. And it's just the greatest sequence, you know, of any movies in this genre. It, it is fun to do, to try to do that. But man, no one ever did it better than him telling a story through pictures and music. Do you, do you, in your film going and in your film viewing, are you, what do you like to watch? What's entertainment for you? Is there a TV show? I'm not mm-hmm. talking about the ones you produce. Yeah. What's one you really admire that's out there this season? Well, I'm a big documentary person, so I love searching for Sugar Man. Yeah, uh, I did, a, I did, a, I did a, a screening of that on Long Island last summer. We had him come. Rodriguez came oh, and wow. sang. It was weird. It was freaky. <laughs> and that, I mean, so I, I love beautiful uh, documentaries. I had never seen the HBO movie that Mike Nichols did of uh, Angels in America, which uh, was uh, Pacino. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. And you know, I, I love Mad Men. I can't get enough of, of Mad Men. I like drama that, that's funny. You know, The Departed. You know, those those things that are, they're all so funny. Yeah, they can be. Like Goodfellas right. and King of it's Comedy. Funny, yeah. You know, I'm always attracted to, to uh, you know, I mean, for me, The Sopranos does that better than anyone ever, I ever did it. I was addicted to The Sopranos. I mean, it's, it's, it is a dark comedy to me when I, when I watch it. Uh, and uh, this year, I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of catching up with, with everything that that's coming out, I haven't I've, I haven't done my uh, my Lincoln run, and I especially like John Regi directed episodes of Thirty Rock. You do. <laughs> so we, we work together at the Larry Sanders show, and I'll watch the show, and I'll notice like this is a really specifically amazingly funny episode. I'm going to miss Regi, and I'll go oh. You could just, you can tell it's like watching the you know the, the uh, Timothy Van Patten directed episodes of The Sopranos. There are certain people on television, you know, their episodes are going to be really great. Well, you love you love episodes. You love shows where even the smallest details and the most inane little things stay with you. Like I was addicted to The Sopranos probably from the third season on. There was a st- scene where Stephen Van Zant is walking outside and they're talking about some grave mafia business. Him and Jimmy. And they make a decision, or Jimmy Gandolfini makes says he's made up his mind to do some horrible thing, and they're walking, and they're, they're very grim. And Stephen said, "I'll never forget." He just is walking with him for like a beat, and he just kind of turns to him and goes, "It's the right thing to do." T. <laughs> he just says the phrase, "It's the right thing to do." T. He goes, "It's the right thing to do." T. <laughs> and probably for the next year and a half, I said that phrase, no matter what. You know, like it just gets in your life and in your yeah. blood and those people and the tone, the tone most of all. Now, um, I would imagine you still have, as some directors I know, probably the ones who have less success than you've had at the box office with your films as a director. They still write, even when they're not directing. Are you in a world now where you only want to write and direct, or are you still writing for hire? Are you doing both, or are you purely going to write and direct only now? Uh, I'm not doing any uh, writing outside of things that I might direct. I I have uh, decided to co-write a few projects with some friends who have great ideas that I'm trying to help them get there faster, and I know I potentially could direct it. For the most part, I'm just writing, but... 
the way that I'm writing with other people is, you know, by being, a, you know, a producer on Girls. So I'll... We're going to uh, interview Lena. Yeah, she's spectacular and, and, and really fun to collaborate with. So to be just part of the staff on that show, helping her figure out what story she wants to tell and just looking for holes in the ship, just anything that could go wrong, I'm trying to anticipate and help her with. That's very fun and gratifying. And then I try to write, you know, one episode a season with her, which... You know, I learn a lot from being with someone who's so courageous in her writing. She's not worried if you like her. It's pretty amazing to be around someone who is so in their moment and has uh, so much they want to express. So I, I find it kind of uh, reinvigorates my own writing and my own tapping into my thoughts. So do is there is there an actor out there, whether they're a, a well-known comic performer, you know, like uh, Carrie and Sandler and those kinds of people who were at the top of that game? Or is there someone out there who you think about you, you'd like to work with that you haven't worked with? Well, I'm such a fan of so many people that, if anything, that becomes like, frustrating to me because sure. I think, wow, it's taken me forever to make four movies. There's only a couple of parts. And how many things am I going to write? And so usually the idea arrives and then you realize, oh, this has a good part for John Lithgow. This makes sense that he would do this. And it, it starts there because I really, you know, I love so many people that I, it, that would drive me crazy at the, the prospect of So that, this that leads dance. perfectly to what, what exactly, you're, you're probably the only person I've encountered based on what you just said about, the, you know, your sprawling appreciation of all these people is, and I, I mean this genuinely, someone has to remake It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Someone has to get yeah. together the cavalcade of I stars. actually have thought about that. <laughs> I, n- not that it would be that movie, but I have thought, can I think of a reason for all these people to, to exist? 20 of the biggest names. Yeah. And, and, yeah, what space would they all be in? And And I've taken it in my head as far as thinking, could we make a movie for charity? I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't. I wanted to do a remake of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Give everybody some points. So if it's going to make a lot of money, they, if we make money, they make money. But up front, they collapse their fees because we're going to do a big piece of it for charity. The only idea. Can we make a movie for charity? I, because that's the only way you could do it. Like you couldn't even begin to figure out the back end deals to. So to the movie make you should possible. make is about the making of a movie for charity. Uh, exactly, exactly. You make a movie about the movie. Making a movie yeah, charity. it could be. Yeah. It, it also, you know, there, we have so many friends that, uh, you know, we appreciate each other's work, but we're not like kids anymore. And you do feel the window closing of when is there going to be an opportunity for five or six of these guys to do oh, something tell together? Tell me about it. And so, you know, they're, I'm 54. How old are you now? 45. I'm 54. It's like, forget it. So I and that's why I made this is for I have these like age issues. So I I, I, I I try to think ahead of my friends. Like my friends are all 45, 50. Okay, what is the movie we would make in our 50s? And I'll five years ahead begin yeah, to start fleshing start, that out. <laughs> start planning. Your kids are in your movie. You put your own children in the movie. That is true. Yes. And what effect does that have? Do like do your kids now do they they close their bedroom door and they don't they're like don't come in here without a script? Well, Don't talk to me. There is a little of, Daddy, why won't you let me work for anybody else? And right. uh, Because I didn't put them in the movie to start a career. I just wanted this idea to work, and I wanted to capture a real family and have people on screen that look like they love each other. There's true intimacy on the screen that you Both cannot get. Both those children get. are your children. Yes. So your, your elder daughter is how old? 
uh, 15. Right. So she's at that age where, you know, everybody, you know, she just wants to throw a bomb on everyone. I mean, exactly. my daughter's 70. It's a very yes. tough age. But um, your younger daughter, she's like the sunshine coming out. Yes. I mean, the kid's incredible. <laughs> Do they want to make movies? Well, Iris, my 10-year-old, she literally will say, I don't want to be an actress. Right. Uh, so she's right. kind of cool. I, yeah. I think she probably wants to write. And then Maud is doing a lot of things. She's uh, She interviewed One Direction for Teen Vogue. And, and her acting is so good here that I am concerned that we'll get you know the, the call out of the blue from James Cameron to ask her to uh, ride a magical dragon for seven yeah. months. And then I have to say, Maud, no, you yeah, actually— In Australia. Yeah, you have, to, you have to finish school, and then she'll hate me for the rest of her life. Yeah. I yeah. could have been in Avatar 2 and you ruined it. Yeah. Instead, you want, me, you want me to wait until I'm in this is 50. Exactly. <laughs> You're an asshole. <laughs> so it's a, it's a miscalculation based on my own greediness to capture how great they are for my movie with no you know, forethought of how it will affect their lives. But they did really enjoy making the movie and they fought so much in the movie and in life that since the movie they've gotten along great like it's almost like by playing out the drama of the ridiculousness of their sibling rivalry seeing themselves on screen they had to think through like why are we fighting what is it about and on some unconscious level they've gone easier on each other since we shot it's so funny because that's the old actor's tenet that gets passed on to you that every role you play perhaps embedded in that role is an opportunity for you to say goodbye to some part of yourself you don't like. I I think that's true. I I look at every movie as a letter to myself telling me something that I need to know about how to live my life. That I'm I'm only on some level making these movies to say, Judd, pay attention. Judd, live in the moment. Because I am a you know a detached writer who who needs to be brought into the moment and a lot What did Leslie think when she saw the movie when it was finally done? What was her comment to you? Uh in the beginning, she worried if it, it didn't end happy enough. And then while we were editing, and now she, she really loves it. And I kind of like that it has that question mark at the end, which is, you know, it's hard work. It's going to be hard work, but they yeah. love each other, and it's definitely right. worth it. I think that sometimes she, you know, worries that it, it could go slightly darker by like 4% than it needs to, mm-hmm. where... I like that question mark of, you know, we're all struggling, but it's okay. That's what life is. And still people say I'm resolving it too much. So you can never walk that line. Some people want it so dark and some people are so pissed it's not all jokes. So, you know, I'm always in the middle. Writer, director Judd Apatow. He says he still wonders what's left to say that he hasn't said. Don't worry, Judd. Turning 50 will give you more than enough for a sequel. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing from WNYC Radio.